This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, Claudia Radovan and Ismail Patel sit with Daryl Lee to talk about his book, The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation on Network Reorient. Today, myself and Dr. Ismail Patel are joined by Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Social Sciences, Daryl Lee. Professor Lee is based at the University of Chicago in the Department of Anthropology, and as well as being an anthropologist, is also an attorney working at the intersection of war, law, migration, empire, and race, with a focus on trans-regional linkages between the Middle East, South Asia, and the Balkans. He's the author of The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity, which develops an ethnographic approach to the comparative study of universalism using the example of transnational jihadists, specifically Arabs and other foreigners who fought in the 1992 to 1995 war in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is uh, absolutely an honour to have you on our podcast today. And before we so delve into your work, I think it would be nice just to tell us how you got involved with Bosnia, I mean, considering you're on the other end of the pond, as it, as it were, and uh, most people who are interested in this studies either look at the Middle East or Afghanistan. Well, um, I'm also one of those people who started off looking at the Middle East, sort of. Um, I... Uh, I was living in the Gaza Strip on 9-11, working for a local human rights organization, and remember very vividly seeing the um, media images of the first captives in orange jumpsuits arriving at Guantanamo, the infamous images. And I very quickly realized that there, um, there wasn't really a way for those opposed to the violence of the war on terror to make sense of the presence of um, non-Afghan Muslims kind of swept up in Afghanistan and sent to this sort of U.S. war on terror prison. Um, of course, they were understood as um, victims of human rights abuses, which of course they were. But beyond that, there wasn't really a sort of social and political context to make sense of their of their presence, right? Which basically, therefore, left the U.S. government with room to put out its narrative, which is essentially that any Arab or foreign Muslim in Afghanistan um, is presumptively a, a member of Al Qaeda or a terrorist or what have you. So I started off. Um, researching this project to understand what kinds of transnational Muslim solidarity um, brought people to Afghanistan. And of course, was thinking about the mobilizations in the 1980s for to, to support the jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. And I spent some time doing research in Pakistan on this. And after a few months, realized that the kind of project I wanted to do would not really be viable for a number of reasons. Um, so even though I had a, a very interesting and productive time in Pakistan and learned a lot, um, it, it didn't seem like I would be able to develop um, the kinds of long-term relationships that you need to do, in my opinion, serious anthropological research with folks who were involved in kind of armed solidarity activism or jihad. It was around that time that I became aware of news reports of 
Arab former Mujahideen or Jihad participants who had settled in Bosnia-Herzegovina after the war there in the 1990s. Um, so it was an opportunity to explore some very similar questions, but in a place that was a little bit more accessible and a little bit easier, at least for someone of my background, to, to do research. So that's sort of how I ended up in Bosnia. But then also part of the backstory is that uh, the, the crisis in Bosnia and the mass atrocities there were also one of the first political events that I remember following kind of as a teenager, right? So my kind of own sentience um, as, a, as a political person and, you know, reading news and so on was very much tied up with, with the Bosnia crisis. Um, so I had a vague, and it, and it shaped a lot of my early sensibilities around politics. And, you know, I kind of started off as sort of a, a liberal humanitarian, and that was sort of in the in the context of my own experiences as a sort of um, immigrant of Asian background, assimilating into a certain kind of American context. So I, I had a very acute sense of the, the symbolism that Bosnia had for Western liberal audiences um, and the way that it animated debates around humanitarian intervention and peacekeeping in the UN. And that was also sort of in, in the back of my head as I uh, turned to Bosnia as a place to do research about transnational jihad movements as well. Thanks for that. Uh, I mean, there's, although you haven't explored, you haven't mentioned it, but I think it's worth mentioning that your work is really a long-term project because I think it spans something like 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. And you take us through uh, some wonderful, uh, very colorful personalities. And through them, you allow us to see uh, what was unfolding in Bosnia. And Bosnia, as you mentioned also, is very important because it's juxtaposed between the Cold War and War on Terror. So there's a shift uh, in world power dynamics, particularly American empire. So I suppose what I want to ask is how do you see the American empire's entanglement or disentanglement, whichever you want to say it, uh, vis-a-vis the events that were unfolding in Bosnia, in particularly with how they represent the transnational jihadist. So we should try to step back to the period of the early 1990s. And what's especially important is that the Soviet Union had just collapsed. The Cold War was over and declared to be a a clear victory for the United States and its allies. And suddenly the United States... um, lacked a clear enemy and a clear principle to justify the unprecedented global killing machine that it had built up over the course of the Cold War. Um, And one of the things that happened in the 1990s was that uh, a series of um, armed conflicts and mass atrocities throughout the world, um, from sub-Saharan Africa, through Asia, through the Middle East, Um, suddenly became potential sites of um, justifications for U.S. imperial power. And what I mean by that, of course, is that mass atrocities um, suddenly became understood as potential problems for the U.S. or for the U.S.-led international community to kind of intervene and play a kind of policing role. And the various crises in um, ex-Yugoslavia, a country, you know, in Southeast Europe that was a socialist regime, but outside of the Soviet bloc, um, 
as Yugoslavia came apart through a combination of resurgent nationalist politics and outside interference, um, the crises there um, were especially prominent to Western audiences because of their European location and because the, the folks who are there were racialized as white. Um, so unlike places such as Rwanda or Somalia, which were kind of put into the mental box of global South, racialized other um, mass atrocities that you know may or may not justify robust forms of humanitarian intervention, the Bosnia crisis had all of that violence, but it was also seen as taking place on the doorstep of Europe and therefore, um, you know, making a mockery of all of these pretensions of Europe now entering a new era of prosperity and peace with the end of the Cold War. Um, and in that sense, the United States was deeply concerned with um, managing the war there, or wars, I should say, in ways that, that safeguarded its own interest, right? And namely, there, there were many disagreements between the Western powers about how to respond to the situation in Bosnia. But I think you could say there was a broad consensus that uh, a majority Muslim state or a state sort of dominated by political Islam um, should not be allowed to emerge. And that is especially tricky given the demographic composition of the population in Bosnia, where people of Muslim background had a plurality, but not a majority, um, at least according to like the last census figures before the war. Um, now, there's a whole other question of to what extent folks of Muslim background in Bosnia actively identify as Muslim, whether in terms of their, um, whether in terms of religious practice or in terms of a political identity, that's a whole other issue. But the United States was constantly playing this balancing role of not wanting to allow Bosnia to sort of emerge as, um, as sort of, you know, uh, uh, totally independent and sovereign and free and strong, um, but at the same time, not allowing it to be completely destroyed in a way that might also result in some kind of uh, small carved out, you know, majority Muslim sort of statelet. So the U.S. was essentially um, playing both sides of the war and um, allowing and standing by as mass atrocities were committed, but then also at times strategically um, taking steps against uh, against the Serb and Croat nationalist forces as well, um, which is partially why the war ends up in such a sort of bizarre stalemate situation where Bosnia is um, an independent and united country on paper, but then is actually deeply um, divided institutionally and even territorially among kind of ethno-nationalist groups in ways that really incentivize ongoing ethnic separatism. Ah, yeah. Um, I'm particularly interested in the areas of your book that look at the intersection of international law and empire. Like when you introduce the idea of the universal enemy, you speak about it in comparison to the model of the citizen soldier and the US Western driven image of neutrality, like a referee or policeman with the lofty values pertaining to human rights. And obviously we see this in contrast to stories like um, Fadil's who fought in Bosnia in the name of jihad, was accorded citizenship, but subsequently had it revoked after 9-11. And this is something we're seeing increasingly in the UK, especially with examples such as Shemaima Begum, Tox Sharif. And despite the studies and notions of a post-colonial world that we live in, uh, the ability to decide who belongs and who doesn't, who's fighting for humanitarian good and who isn't, is still arbitrarily decided by the West, usually the US. 
Do you think we can look at the war on terror less as a state of global civil war, as Giorgio Agamben stated, and rather as a continuation of a colonial project that many believe to have ended? Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue that it's that it's both of those things and many other things at the same time. Um, what I tend to focus on, um, and there are of course many aspects of the war on terror, but the part that 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 um, this book spends a lot of time thinking about is the global war on terror as an exercise in policing transnational Muslim mobility. Um, mm-hmm. So, what's especially threatening in the eyes of the United States is not simply Muslims doing things that the United States doesn't like. It's those Muslims who do things that the United States does not like while crossing national boundaries and being engaged in violence. So the standard model for U.S. imperial hegemony throughout the world, not just the Muslim-majority societies, is um, is to exercise leverage over nominally independent and juridically equal nation states right? So decolonization, everyone's free, everyone has their own governments. And it just happens to be that these governments in many parts of the world do exactly what the United States wants to, not because they're colonies, but because they're doing it out of their own national self-interest, right? Now that's, Mm -hmm. so that's the the sort of standard way that the U.S. gets what it wants, right? Through aid relationships and dependency and pressure and so on. And that works in many cases because most people live under nation-state governments that have a lot of control over their lives. What's especially um, threatening about transnational jihad mobilizations is that folks are not only defying the state's monopoly on violence, but they're also defying the state's monopoly on um, transnational violence, on going to war outside of their boundaries, right? So the U.S. uh, security state tends to draw this distinction, for example, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, when the U.S. invades, they sort of understand that the local population might have an insurgency against them. And of course, they're not happy about it, but it's something that they that they are not totally surprised by and, and they have a way of understanding it. But what the U.S. then treats as separate and what they totally demonize is folks coming from outside and engaging in violence against them, mm-hmm. right? So this whole discourse came up during the early years of the U.S. occupation of Iraq, where the U.S. kept on talking about foreign fighters in Iraq, right? Foreign fighters are carrying out the suicide bombings. Foreign fighters are the the hardcore dead-enders who have to be eliminated while the Iraqi insurgents can potentially be co-opted. Now, it's important to draw attention to the fact that the United States at this time had hundreds of thousands of troops in Iraq, um, so they were themselves a foreign occupying army, but but threw around this phrase foreign fighter without really any sense of self-consciousness or self-awareness, I should say. Um, so that's sort of what the title of the book is trying to get at, right? So in calling this book The Universal Enemy, um, it's not a claim that transnational jihad actors are somehow, you know, um, hostile to everyone in the world, right? Even though that's how they're often portrayed, right? As kind of against pluralism, against the West, Mm -hmm. against secularism, against everything that is good. Um, But it's that when the United States declares someone or an actor to be an enemy, they're not just doing it on their own behalf. They're also often doing it on behalf of all of humanity, 
right? And that's a weird kind of flex that I think has to be um, dissected a little bit, right? So the U.S. is able to speak in the name of humanity um, as a form of, of rationalizing and exercising its hegemony. And um, that's what I think is also particularly insidious about the way that U.S. empire works. Um, and then what the book does is it tries to take that provocation and say, well, what about these folks who are engaged in jihad? Aren't they also um, making claims directed at all of humanity? Aren't they also engaged in their own kind of universalist project, albeit one that looks really different than what the U.S. is doing and can't be easily compared to it? Um, but the book tries to sort of make the case of, you know, what would it look like if we actually thought about these uh, transnational jihad movements with that lens on. And then, in, so that that gets us away from questions around like radicalization, how did they get so crazy? And instead um, brings up the actual day-to-day -day dilemmas of the transnational solidarity movement, right? So how do they reconcile mm -hmm. a global commitment to the ummah with the actual lived experience of differences, be they doctrinal differences, national, cultural, racial differences, and so on? Mm. No, thank you very, very much. That's very interesting. I just want to push you on that point further ahead, Dr. Lee. Uh, I mean, there's several layers in your book, of course, and uh, unfortunately, we'll not be able to touch all of them. So we'd recommend people to go and buy the copy and read for themselves, but hopefully it's a tasters towards, towards the book. And one of the layer is, of course, the whole idea of uh, multiple universalism, and you touch on non-aligned movement, the UN, the UN itself, the UN uh, peacekeeping force, global war on terror, and transnational jihadist, uh, and you, you portray them uh, so that each one, as you mentioned earlier, can be seen that it's trying to uh, come across as its own idea of universe, what they consider as universal. How how did you come to? that idea, and in particularly what I suppose my real question is, what you're trying to do in one way is not trying to define, but to see how the word itself and the concept is being played and adopted. How do you think that, that is working out at the moment? Yeah, so this kind of gets back to your earlier question about Bosnia. Um, so for me, as kind of someone growing up in the U.S. and absorbing all of this sort of media discourse about the Bosnia crisis, so much of it was about um, what the UN was doing and what the international community was doing. Um, and there's sense of, you know, why is the international community quote unquote standing by? Why don't they quote unquote do something? And all the kind of like problematic savior narratives that are associated with that. Um, so when I first read about, um, even during the war, I remember this, you know, as a high school student, seeing a couple of news stories here and there about the small number of Arab mujahideen um, who had arrived in Bosnia. You know, my first thought even then was sort of like, well, aren't these people kind of doing what um, folks who are clamoring for humanitarian intervention are doing? Like, is it like at, at a certain level, there's a kind of structural similarity there. Um, so for me, as someone who was also working in kind of the, the human rights and humanitarian um, sort of NGO space, um, and also in, in sort of like more politically inclined solidarity work, especially um, Palestine, Palestine solidarity, you know, I, 
what what jumped out to me about a lot of these movements were things that I recognized were resonances and similarities. And for me, that became the starting point for kind of building an analysis and building an argument. Whereas I think the more typical way of dealing with uh, sort of contemporary jihad practices is to have a starting point of um, of radical alterity of, whoa, these people are totally different, totally crazy. Um, that, that takes two different modes. It can take a, a straight up kind of racist demonizing mode, which is kind of the more mainstream mode. But then I think also for a lot of Muslims, um, it raises this, this, uh, this anxiety and this fear of, um, oh my God, these are the people who, you know, um, who we are all kind of being accused of somehow like, being connected to or that they represent us in some way. So there's that strong feeling of dissociation and apologia, right? That also shapes even a lot of the critical discourse around the war on terror. Um, so what I really wanted to do was to write a book about contemporary jihad practices that didn't succumb to either of these um, sorts of pressures. And of course, you know, as someone who is um, neither white nor racialized as Muslim, there is a weird almost, uh, you know, space that allowed me to kind of do that work, right? Because I can do these interviews and make these arguments about jihad and and face a very different reception from academic audiences and other audiences than other folks, right? Who immediately are going to be tarred with all sorts of suspicion, especially, you know, as we deal with the world of prevent and CVE and so on. So I'm very conscious of the fact that um, not everyone can equally access these kinds of narratives or these kinds of arguments. But my hope is that by writing a different kind of book about contemporary jihad practices that tries to move away from this politics of defensiveness and apologia, that it might open up a little bit of space for other folks to, to um, take other paths that might not have been previously available to them. Uh, sort of, sorry, um, sorry, Claudia, I just want to ask another question. Something that's very interesting. Sure, sure. Uh, um, and it's the idea of racialization. Uh, I mean, we know Muslims come from all sorts of different backgrounds and they have different colors and, and different ethnicities and cultures and call whatever categories we would like to assign to them. Yet we in Bosnia and particularly and generally now through Islamophobia, that uh, the idea of Muslimness and Muslims are racialized. And particularly, I want you to consider the idea which you talk about um, denying Muslim mobility uh, as a Muslimness and jihad as a concept as well as a Muslimness, as a Muslimness trope. Uh, do you think there is this emergence of racialization of Muslims? And we can talk about Islamophobia, which you slightly touch in your book, but obviously do not go much in depth uh, of the Muslims, so that we can consider Islamophobia as a type of racism. Yeah, this is a really interesting and kind of live debate. Um, I think it's fair to say that when we're talking about the war on terror or similar projects, that there is arguably a process or an attempt to racialize Muslims that is going on. But at the same time, that racialization is colliding with and cutting across all sorts of other regimes of racialization that are operating in the world, right? So there isn't one smooth, uh, you know, racialization chart that we can kind of put everyone, you know, into their proper place on. Um, and that's part of what makes these discussions very, very messy, right? So in the United States, for example, um, 
the racialization of Muslims has a vague association with um, folks of um, Middle Eastern and South Asian origin, right? Including folks who may not identify as Muslim at all, like Sikhs. Um, that, of course, um, collides with the reality that, as you as you pointed out, um, there are you know there are Muslims of many many different racial backgrounds, and in the United States, in particular, um, Black Muslims are a very very significant. Um, part of the community and actually even more historically rooted in the United States than the sort of immigrant communities from the Middle East and South Asia that came later and that have since um, kind of uh, assumed a sort of hegemonic place in terms of representations of what a Muslim quote unquote looks like in the United States. And what's really interesting about the Bosnia case is that Bosnia, because it's situated in, in Europe, um, also doesn't fit easily, doesn't fit neatly within this idea of Muslims as racial subjects, right? So um, this plays out in all sorts of different ways. I think when it comes to um, Western liberal elites and their responses to the war, I think they had a certain idea of racial if not solidarity, at least they recognized Bosnians as Europeans. And, you know, if you look at the media coverage at the time, there's all of these tropes about, well, you know, Bosnian Muslims are sort of good Muslims. They're European, they're secular, they're this, they're that, all of these things that really were meant to kind of reassure uh, Western audiences that uh, that these were folks deserving of minimal humanitarian concern. Um and, you know, race is, is is certainly, you know, a part of those conversations and, and a part of, you know, the, the way that U.S. elites kind of understood the situation there. So in a way, they're kind of torn between their anti-Muslim animus, but then they're also their sort of, um, you know, uh, white supremacist uh, logics and grid, right? And that, that produced a, a kind of political ambiguity, right, where the U.S. wasn't sort of clearly, you know, against Bosnia or for Bosnia, or at least it shifted kind of at, at different points in time. Um, similarly, if you know, if you, if you flip the the lens from the other side, in terms of the Muslim solidarity movements with Bosnia throughout the world, not just the jihad stuff, because the jihad stuff is is a very very small part of, you know. A broad landscape of folks sending humanitarian aid, um, engaging in da'wah, and so on. Um, for a lot of um, majority Muslim societies in in the Middle East and in South Asia, you know, there was also this fascination, and still is fascination, with the whiteness of European and especially Bosnian Muslims. Right. So again, it's sort of a reminder of the the sort of universal um, um, potentiality of the Ummah. Right. That like, oh wow, there's you know, sort of all of these white Muslims as well, um, which of course, you know, can't be totally separated from the way that white supremacy operates as a global logic and that implicates all sorts of populations. Um, so the so anyway, Bosnia is a really um, important and interesting case to talk about racialization of Muslims precisely because it doesn't really fit neatly into any of these categories. Um, and the folks who really were the ones who pushed this in strange ways were of course the Serb and Croat nationalists who were um, who are fighting Bosnian Muslims, right? So I think for them, there was this, um, so just, you know, for folks who may not be aware of the context, um, these are folks who, you know, live in the same country, uh, speak the same language, and, you know, there isn't like an obvious um, phenotypical way to tell them all apart, right? Um, so in that context, for some Serb and Croat nationalists, you know, there was this idea that Bosnian Muslims are kind of like the 
the the the sharp tip of a civilizational uh, spear of globe of a global Islamic threat, right? That Bosnian Muslims might be might look white, but you know they're really tied to this much much larger civilizational and racial threat that is aimed at all of Europe. Right. So the argument that these folks made to the West was essentially, you know, you need to you need to back our side so that um, so that this doesn't happen to you. Right. In in many ways. And this is quite unfortunate. The politics of the war were a kind of um, competitive bidding for the sympathy of Western elites. Right. Now, I I don't mean that in a pejorative way, because I think, you know, the Bosnian side in particular was um, crippled in its ability to defend itself by UN Security Council resolutions that impose an arms embargo. So for Bosnian Muslims who are facing genocidal massacres and ethnic cleansing, there's a kind of desperation to get assistance of any kind from any direction that is very understandable under the circumstances. Um, but it is interesting that, uh, the, the, that, it, that the structure leads to a kind of jockeying for position among the different factions there within a certain kind of racial logic that is coming from the U.S. and Western Europe. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in terms of, you know, you take a very different approach to a lot of the, um, tr you know, traditional narratives on jihadism, terrorism, the ethnographic anthropological approach and you you mentioned obviously the um the racialization of muslims and the uh the the difference in terms of talking about bosnia and, and the dichotomy of you know good muslims versus bad muslims which is a, a rhetoric that we hear a lot about in the uk um i was wondering um how your work sort of debunks or disrupts the uh sort of more traditional narratives um, put forward by terrorism studies that became so prolific post 9-11. And, you know, quite often much, much of the policy we see today is based on that. Well, there's so many things that are wrong with that discourse that I'm not even sure where to start. Um, and I had to make a decision early on that I couldn't make the book that debunking those narratives was a necessary part of the project, mm. but it couldn't become the goal of the project. And sure. I think this is something that a lot of the work that we've been doing, and by we, I mean kind of like folks in, you know, Middle East studies, Islamic studies, who have been critical towards the war on terror. I think we've often limited ourselves by this kind of reactive approach, right? Where we're trying mm -hmm. to like, shoot down this racist narrative or shoot down that racist narrative. And what ends up happening is you allow the other side to uh, define the parameters of discussion. And that really mm -hmm. ends up cramping and, and, you know, kind of our, the space for a lot of the arguments that we need to be thinking with to, to sort of build in a more positive direction. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, things that are conventionally done in the field that I um, have a problem with. I mean, the first thing that is important for folks to know who are listening to this, who are trying to decide if they want to, you know, read this book or not, is that um, it's based in actual research, right? So I spent over a year in Bosnia and have done interviews in a half dozen other countries. And the research is mostly conducted in Arabic or Bosnian, as well as several other languages, um, drawing extensively on uh, primary source literature like um, memoirs and also the internal uh, documents of the main jihad 
battalion in Bosnia, right? So mm -hmm. unlike a lot of other so-called foreign fighter situations like in Chechnya or Afghanistan or whatever, the, the Bosnian uh, Jihad battalion was integrated into a nation state army. And that leaves behind um, an archival paper trail that you don't have in a lot of other cases. So, um, so the first thing is just that the, you know, the sheer amount of, um, of primary source information that's been mm -hmm. gathered here, I think is different. Um, I actually made a decision early on that I was not going to use cite or depend on, uh, the secondary so-called terrorism studies literature for this work, because I think most of it is just at a very basic level, um, uh, totally unreliable, you know, with very few exceptions. Mm -hmm. There's a few people out there whose work is empirically okay. They're just, you know, they're, it's just that their conceptual framework is totally, you know, tied to American or Western kind of imperial interests. Um, but, you know, the other things about, about kind of the approach here is that I don't, um, I don't take up jihadism as a problem. Um, mm. So again, almost all of these books are kind of, you know, the, the underlying assumption is, Muslims are being violent. That's a problem. We need to explain that. Um, my approach is more like, look, there are mass atrocities happening against the Muslim population here. And it's not shocking that some number of Muslims, which happens to be actually quite small in the grand scheme of things, you know, are going to feel a certain way about it and get involved in solidaristic activity. And some of that solidaristic activity is going to take an armed form. Um, to me, that's not really, um, that's not that interesting, honestly. It's not that, because it's not surprising. In fact, yeah. if anything, there's a puzzle about why aren't more people, not just Muslims, but people in general, why aren't more people angry and taking up arms against the, <laughs> against the kind of the prevailing world order? Um, that, I think that's a more interesting research question. But, but, you know, all I'm saying is that, you know, I, there's certain standard um, questions that I just, that are just not my questions. I'm just not interested in them. And I, because I think they've been done to death and, mm. and they're often done in a way that contributes to death. So I kind of approach this of, well, you know, instead of looking at jihad as a problem, let's figure out to what is it a proposed solution, right? Now it's a solution that has its own baggage and has its own problems. And there's many things about it that can be critiqued, but I think just reorienting the study in that way allowed me to write um, a different kind of book, right? And a book that tried to take seriously the world that these folks are inhabiting, um, you know, and not to look at it kind of through the lens of, of kind of the national security state. Mm. Thank you very much for that. There's, there's definitely a lot to consider there. Uh, Ismail? Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the other concepts you sort of disrupt is the nation state. And it's very interesting. I don't know. I'm sure you, you did this uh, with an intention. You never discuss uh, state players in here, whether the jihadists are from, say, Iran or Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Sudan. You look at them as persons. Similarly, you don't talk about uh, Ali Azabekovic uh, as a Bosnian leadership or Bosnian state. Uh, I suppose my question is, how much limitation do you think the concept of nation states imposes on new researchers and young researchers? Well, um, I think the nation state is certainly still extremely important and extremely relevant. <laughs> um, and I would say that the main constraint is uh, a kind of methodological nationalism 
Um, so a lot of the work on transnational jihad formations tends to look at people primarily in terms of the nation state that they're connected to. Um, so as I say in the book, there's kind of two broad approaches. There's books that focus on the countries of origin, and there's books that focus on the countries, the destination countries, right? And what's really strange about this literature is that the books that look at, you know, uh, the countries of origin will say something like, okay, let's look at a place like Egypt or Algeria. There were these activists, they went off to fight in Afghanistan and they came back and they were radicalized and more crazy than ever before. Um, and then when you read the literature on, say, Afghanistan or Chechnya, um, what you find is a narrative that says these fighters arrived from Egypt or Algeria or what have you, and they were crazy and they were more violent towards civilians than the local rebels and things like that. So if you if you read these two types of texts next to each other, there's a problem, which is like on one on one side you say people went and then they you know, they were radicalized when they came back. And on the other side, you say, well, people were radicalized when they showed up. So like, what, what's going on? Like, did they get radicalized on the plane ride? Right. So this kind of like national nation state framing um, is one that I think is, yeah, it, it severely limits the work on this field. And, um, and again, this gets back to the basic issue around um, imper around methods and training and, and so on. Um, in order to do transnational work, I think you have to be familiar with the languages and contexts of both places, right? And you have to think about these folks um, as having trajectories that connect different geographies. Um, so that's often a problem here, right? So where folks are focusing um, so much, they, they have their blinders on, where they try to approach the issue as uh, sort of um, a phenomenon affecting one nation state or another, as opposed to really taking the fact that it's transnational kind of seriously on its own terms. I think we're running out of time from my side, uh, Dr. Claudia. It's not yours. Yes, no. I'm, I'm, I think I think we are running out of time. Um, I suppose all that's left to say is thank you, Daryl, for joining us today and expanding on your work. This has been a really fascinating and valuable conversation on an area that we we don't hear about as much as as you say, as Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I would love to continue the conversation uh, again, but thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl. And we look forward to another conversation on Network Reorient. Please join us for the next one. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.